When life as you know it is flipped upside down, we struggle to make sense of it all. Why would a good God allow this to happen? Hi, I'm Sherry Pilkington, your host of Finding God in Our Pain. In early 2018, the deepest questions of my life erupted when I unexpectedly lost my husband of 32 years. Since then, I've searched the heart of God for what He has to say about pain and suffering. In this podcast, we'll discover how God enters into our pain, shepherds us through our darkest valley, and out into the green pastures once again. I'll bring you firsthand stories from women who will allow us into their authentic struggle, along with professional advice from experts, counselors, and others who can speak to what it looks like to navigate pain. Join me as we discover God's answers to the deepest cries of our shattered heart. I have the absolute pleasure of talking with Suzanne Burns. She is the founder and executive director of Foundation House Ministries, a maternity home that mentors expectant mothers through a crisis pregnancy. She's a certified family trauma professional, and she oversees the years-long residential program designed to help women financially, emotionally, physically, and most importantly, spiritually. My interest in talking with her was to get a small glimpse of what the love of God looks like in a practical application of meeting a young woman in the midst of her crisis. Pregnancy. After talking with Suzanne, I can see that she's a woman of the soil. I say that because she made a comment about breaking up the hard soil of a young woman's heart. I think it was about halfway through our conversation, but as we continued to talk, I could see how that was key to everything that she does. She's deeply committed to giving every young mom the best possible shot at the life they are worthy of. She keeps the heart posture of not being offended and seeing through the survival skills into the intrinsic value of each person that God entrusts her with however briefly that may be. Suzanne plants seeds of truth in love. Even if the young moms do not finish the program, she has made a good deposit, equipping them with the knowledge of the one who pursues them with his love, no matter where they go and no matter what choices they make. Being trustworthy, showing a love that's not conditional, and guiding with God's steadfast truth loosens the soil around the invasive roots that have spread deep from the lies that a young woman may believe about herself or her circumstance. In Suzanne's care, the soil of the heart has been prepared, watered, and when it's ready for harvest, when or if the young woman decides to make Christ her home, new life is ready to take root and produce a harvest. Life is always in a state of change, but there is one who is steadfast and faithful in every situation and circumstance. I can't help but think that even if these young women leave the program early, they will always look back and know that Suzanne loved them with the truth. Welcome, Suzanne, and thank you so much for being a guest and for sharing your passion to help women who find themselves in crisis situations with little or no options. And I love how you bring science, the psychology part of human life, into the everyday interactions and decisions, specifically in the context of women in crisis. Give us a little bit of background on how you can relate to a woman in crisis and how, if at all, did that bring you into your passion to help the disenfranchised portion of society? Yeah, wow, that's a great question. I feel like I could spend the the next hour just talking on that one alone. (laughs) So I experienced my own crisis pregnancy when I was a junior in college. And I was in a situation, I grew up in a Christian home and was about 1800 miles away at college, at a Christian college. But for the first time, I had the opportunity to kind of experience, um, experience life with nobody looking over my shoulder, nobody checking to see whether or not I was home yet. And so I didn't know how to handle it because my parents had always had that very Uh, carefully crafted protective bubble around me. And so uh, much like the frog in the frying pan, 
I very quickly found myself experimenting with drugs and smoking and drinking. And, you know, then one day I wake up and I'm pregnant. And so it was a really difficult road for me. I did marry the baby's father and it had been a not great relationship while we were dating and it grew even worse as we were married. So we divorced when my son was two. He's uh, 21 now. He's in the U.S. Marine Corps and married and has a, a child on the way himself. Those first few years of living on my own was really difficult. And there were so many other women around me who needed help, who were struggling themselves. And I wanted to be able to help, but in all practicality, there was nothing I could do for them. I could barely keep myself afloat. Fast forward a few years, I, I remarried and we had a, a second son who's 15 now. And I began to reach a point in my life where I could begin to give back. And so I began volunteering at a crisis pregnancy center where we did pregnancy tests. We, we counseled with women who were, you know, unsure of what to do now that they either were pregnant or thought they might be. And so I, I volunteered there for seven years. And as time went on, we began seeing more and more women coming through who were in much worse circumstances, who were living in their cars who were trying to escape an abusive situation, who were, who were financially trapped in their circumstances and really had no way to escape it practically. And so the Lord began to lay it on my heart that we needed a, a more holistic, a more comprehensive type of program. And so in 2011, he gave me the vision for having uh, Foundation House Ministries, which is a maternity home for women who find themselves either pregnant and homeless, or we also have a non-residential program that serves mothers who um, ha have lost custody and are working on reunification. These are key foundational pieces in trying to rebuild a life, and you come alongside someone who is experiencing this type of, uh, I think, devastation in their life. Tell us a little bit about ACTS, the acronym. Adverse Childhood Experiences. Okay, Adverse Childhood Experiences. Okay, so ACE. And also give us a little bit about the cool systems and the hot systems. When the average person is trying to make a difference in somebody's life, I think this is huge information in order to understand what you're walking into and volunteering your time for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so adverse childhood experiences, this is actually a 10 question uh, survey that asks you from birth to age 18, which of these um, categories did you experience? Um, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, physical or emotional neglect. And then in the um, household dysfunction category, there's Domestic violence, did you observe your parents in domestic situations? Substance abuse related to your parents again or other family members. Incarceration, mental illness or homelessness. Also in there is divorce or growing up in a single parent household. So it, out of those, it doesn't matter how many times you might have experienced one of those. It, if you have it one time, then, then it just counts as one. So your ACE score could be a zero all the way up to a 10. In my case, growing up, my, my life would, was a zero all the way up till I met my first husband. And it very quickly went over those four years that we were together. It very quickly went up to a seven. And then as I left, it went back down. You know, it never really goes back all the way down to zero, but, um, but it did go back down and begin to diminish. 
But that's a good distinction to make in the sense that you can start out in a zero and be fine as far as your ability to deal or function stress levels, and then enter into a situation where it escalates that number. And then there's encouraging information to find out that it does drop. If you're intentional. That's good. That's good to know that there, you know, you can reach for that and achieve that. So the hot and the cool systems, did I use that term right? Yeah. Your autonomic nervous system is how, that's how God created you to handle all of the information coming in and and how to process it. So your, your cool system is your parasympathetic nervous system dominance. That is what's turned on. That's what we're in right now. That's what you're usually in a typical atmosphere. This is your, your processing, your thinking, you're able to have a conversation and able to laugh and joke. Your hot system that we call it, it's kind of the nickname is your sympathetic nervous system. When that gets turned on, that's your emergency management system. So that's your survival mode. When you're being chased by dogs, when it's dark out and you think, uh, you know, you, you might have somebody coming close to you that could be an attacker, those types of situations, that's what flips on. And when it flips on, it's turning on certain aspects of your physical body and it's turning off others. Just like in the old Star Trek episodes, you know, when they're trying to escape from the bad guys, you know, they're, they're saying turn off everything but life support, all systems to forward thrust, all energy to warp speed or something like that. That's exactly what your body is doing when you're in hot system dominance. That's the benefit. Your uh, adrenaline is going up, your cortisone levels are, have gone up, your senses are heightened. You can run faster, you can see further, you can hear more clearly because you're having to escape. The whole goal is survival. How do you protect yourself? The problem comes when your survival mode is turned on for too long in um, all those chemicals and hormones that are being activated when your emergency system flips on, those take about 18 to 24 hours to metabolize back into your system for you to kind of go back down to calm. Um, Think about like, you, you know, you almost had a car accident and, you know, in the moment you're, you're calm and you're collected and then. And then when the moment passes, now is when you're shaking. Now is when you're freaking out. That's your hot system beginning to release those those hormones. You could be focused in the moment. You could do what you needed to do in that moment. And now that you don't have to do anything, now you can freak out. Now you can have the panic attack. That makes sense. Yeah, that's what you were built for. But many of our clients, many of the women that I serve and and many many people in long-term poverty really don't go 18 to 24 hours without another dose coming along. The thing is, is that, that a lot of different things can trigger those doses. Just thinking about, um, you know, which, who am I going to have home tonight? My nice dad or my drunk dad? Um, is my uncle going to abuse me again tonight? Am I going to be safe? Can I go to my friend's sleepover with, and, and is her dad going to be there? All of those different fears and thoughts can also trigger a dosage of your nervous system. And so many of the women that we deal with, they've experienced so much trauma over their lifetimes that their bodies have actually begun to develop 
differently. Their sympathetic nervous system was turned on for too long. Their cool system, their parasympathetic system didn't get the opportunity to fully develop correctly. And so when your parasympathetic system is turned off, that's when uh, you end up with digestive issues. That's when you're more likely to end up with chronic inflammation, you're more likely to become diabetic, you're more likely to have certain types of cancers, all because you stayed too long in that sympathetic nervous system dominance. Your parasympathetic is logic and reasoning and forethought. And so if that doesn't get to develop correctly, then, you know, really for all intents and purposes, you can be, you know, in your 30s, 40s, even in your 70s and 80s and effectively be 15. Mm. You, your brain hasn't fully developed and a lot of parts of your body haven't fully developed either. That is so interesting to me. The brain and the body work together. In fact, 80% of our, of our nerves are afferent, which means your body is going up to your brain, telling your brain what to, what to think. So your, brain, your body tells your brain what's going on and then your brain tells your body what to do about it. So that's why it's so important to be learning de-stressing tips and be learning how to calm your system physically because if your body is physically calm then your brain will become calmer and if your brain is calm then it will tell your body how to get calmer and then it it becomes a positive cycle of reinforcement instead of a negative that's good that's important so what are some of the things to maintain a calm cool system well, so the first thing is to figure out what's triggering you okay, so that you can avoid that or manage it more effectively in the future. If you have people in your life that are a constant drain or you find yourself constantly frustrated or upset or, or moving into anger when you're there, you know, they're triggering that fight, flight, freeze response in you. That's definitely something that you want to look into is this friendship really still worth it to me? Um, even if that could be family, is this worth it to me? And then from there, it's knowing yourself. Music can be really soothing, worship music. I practice yoga. I know it is not um, always something that Christians are supportive of, but I, that's an entirely different conversation for a different episode for sure. Well, I will add this. When I do yoga, I show up with my scripture. When they say clear your mind, I do not do that. I'm like, God, I invite you in. But I do find the benefits from it, from relaxing. And I enter in in a whole different value system and a whole different frame of mind. So I get what you're saying. And there's so many great ways that you can meditate as well. The thing with our clients is most of the time they have little to no understanding of who God is. So when we meditate, we don't generally use scripture because it's meaningless to them. We'll put on a beach scene that just has the natural waves. We never do a guided meditation. Mm. Those can be very dangerous, but we'll put on a beach scene or maybe we'll do an underwater scene that's like classical music and you have the turtles swimming by and the brightly colored fish. You know, that's helpful for people who are, are more visually centered, which is what I am. I'm a visual learner. And so things like that can help the girls to focus on something. 
because what we're doing when we're when we're instructing them to clear their minds, I definitely understand what you're saying and I 100% agree. But what we're telling them to do is to shut out those voices that you're listening to, the tapes that play over and over in your mind that say that you're worthless and that you're stupid and that you're not good enough and you're not ever going to be good enough. And many of our women have lost custody of older children and sometimes are also pregnant at the same time. And so there's, there's also that you're a terrible mom. You, the, your kids deserve better than you. You don't, you don't deserve to get them back and you shouldn't even be trying because they deserve so much better than you. So it's those types of things that we're trying to teach them how to tune out so that they have room to be able to begin to hear us. I can only imagine how powerful that is because just hearing that, that's huge. You're trying to make this transition, this bridge between the fact that you mentioned they do not know God, but yet you're leading him into this meditative place of peace and which I guess does open the awareness or the introduction to who God is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we're a hundred percent a Christian Christ centered ministry, but we also treat it very gently because every woman that comes in is in a different place to receive who he is. We've had girls come in who had been prostituting. And one of them told me that one of her Johns was the associate pastor of the church that she attended. We've had girls come in and her grandmother was very, very religious, but her grandmother was also the one who was her primary abuser, physical abuser. We've had women come through who were molested on the church van being picked up for church for Sunday school. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding of who God is and what what he is all about, what his people are all about. But then there's also lack of knowledge. It was really random, but I won this big decorative Billy Graham book one time at an event I was at. And one of my girls came in and saw it, saw his picture on the cover and was like, oh, who, who's that? And it's like, how do you not know who Billy Graham is, <laughs> you know? And they have no understanding of who Moses was or, or King David. They, they don't understand. They've heard the name Jesus, but they've, they've probably mostly heard it as part of a curse word. Right. They really have no framework for who he is. And so we have to be really, really careful how we introduce biblical Christianity so that they get a clear picture of what it's actually supposed to look like. And we began to undo the damage that's been done before us. In the parable of the sower, I I use that a lot. I I talk to people a lot of times about they're not ready for the seed to be planted yet. We have to do the weeding and the, the, the tilling up of the dirt. And a lot of times it's not so much about planting seed. It's about preparing the soil so the seed can be planted. Whether we get the, the benefit, the luxury of being able to be the ones to plant seed or whether we're just preparing her for the next person to come along and they get to plant the seed. Uh, we do an awful lot of soil preparation. That's a humble posture in the work. So humble is where God loves to work. Are you seeing the transformation? The short answer is yes. All of these girls leave changed. To what degree is, um, it's not my job. I have to be, that has to be first and foremost, because we do have girls who leave and go back to drugs. Mm -hmm. We do have girls who leave too soon. We do have girls who get their phone back and meet a guy on the internet and now they don't need us anymore. Right. Um, 
but we also have girls who stick with it. We also have girls who persevere. And in fact, today we had our volunteer appreciation um, luncheon. And one of the volunteers is actually one of our graduates. So it's just over two years that she came in because her little son was running around. He turned two uh, day before Halloween. So she arrived in August of 2018 and she was uh, fresh out of six months in jail. She was 29, did not have custody of her two older children and was seven months pregnant. And she was also a part of drug court because of her drug charges. And uh, she didn't have her GED or high school diploma. Over the course of the year, little over a year that she lived with us, she got her GED, she got her driver's license, she was able to get custody restored of her two older children, she had her son, she met a young man in drug court that is also going through recovery, and they began dating. When she moved out of our program, she moved in with him, not what we recommended, but a couple months later, they did get married. And in January of 2020, we celebrated their wedding. Today, she was with us as a volunteer. Mm-hmm. And the transformation is just unbelievable. She is just so much fun. When you look at her, you don't even see that girl that she used to be. Now she's 31. She and her husband are taking the classes to lead a Celebrate Recovery class at her church. She is just really, really thriving. And so it, it's, it's one of those things that it's just so individual. You know, right. I can't dictate that they accept Jesus, mm-hmm. um, but I can, I can do my best to show him off right. and to show him as, as worth it, worth the effort, worth the hardship. We have a lot of girls come in and I always make an effort to tell them that I love them. Bye. I love you. Um, Have a good day. I love you. I'll see you tomorrow. I love you. Even when they leave badly, there was one girl on the sidewalk, just, just down outside our office. I said, I love you. I I don't like what you're doing and I wish you weren't leaving, but I love you. And she got so angry at me. You can't love me. And she was holding her, her daughter in the car seat, but if it had been anything else in her hand, just her body movements, I know she would have thrown it at me, <laughs> but that's okay because I still love her and she wasn't ready to receive it. So many of our girls come through, they've been in foster care, they've been in other programs. I have one friend who is uh, one of our cl- former clients. I've known her now for five years since she came into our program and she's still in active addiction. Uh, when we counted up not long ago, how many programs she's been in and, and she's 25 and she's been in 23 different programs throughout her life. You just know that the Lord loves her no matter what. Mm. And yet she is struggling to, to receive it. She's struggling to understand that for herself. It's beginning to mean something to her. And so she's finally beginning to, to understand it a little bit better. And I have hopes that soon she won't have to have another program to go to, that soon she'll be able to begin living the life that she really wants to. I love the fact that she keeps trying. I love the fact she keeps coming back. She hasn't given up, even though she hasn't been fully persuaded. Yeah. She's not giving up. So that's a blessing. That's an answer to prayer. Yeah. From your perspective, what you guys are doing, what you and your ministry is doing, how do you reach the heart of a woman whose love language is at best diluted and at worst destroyed by the brokenness of this world? 
because in all honesty, her decisions are made through the lens of survival. Because in short, they don't speak the same language that we speak or that the average person speaks, or even the average Christian who's in the church trying to make a difference in the world. And for that reason alone, many will not venture into this particular area of serving. How do you learn to speak her language for the best shot at transformation into the life that God intended for her? Well, that's a good question. It's, it has to do with building trust. She cannot hear us if she cannot trust us. Hmm. And so first and foremost, we let her know that she's in a safe place. You're not going to be kicked out of our program unless it's just, it's got to be bad. It's got to be bad. We put up with a lot. Hmm. My goal is to teach women how to become sheep instead of goats and not accidentally teach them how to look like sheep instead And so, you know, court didn't go well today for one of our clients. And of course, none of us are allowed to be there because of COVID. Mm -hmm. She had to to do that all by herself. So she's in one of the other uh, staff person's offices, you you know, describing what happened and very descriptively (laughs) using quite a lot of F-bombs. She was very honest about her opinions. And we almost never say, now, now, let's not use that kind of language we just let her speak because that's her, that's her language. Mm -hmm. We're not afraid of letting her be who she truly is. In fact, that we prefer that Um, we laugh, you know, we always enjoy the honeymoon phase when they first come in, they're all, you know, sweet and kind and yes, ma'am. And um, really making sure, you know, they're on eggshells, making sure that we were really who we say we are and they're not going to get kicked out. And what are the other girls in the house like? It's a very awkward thing to come into this program. And, you know, you're living with strangers and you don't know who they are. And sometimes you're sharing a bedroom with a total stranger. We appreciate that time of the honeymoon where we are the ones who are demonstrating that we are trustworthy but we also really love it when we begin to see the cracks coming through, when we begin to see her coming out of the honeymoon phase right. and she starts showing who she really is. And that usually comes in anger or frustration. It's just that the realness of, of her situation, when we start to see that, that's when we know we actually are breaking through and are able to have true and lasting conversation, which can lead to true and lasting change. Mm. So hearing the F word is not really that big of a deal to me. They dress how they choose to dress. We're not gonna really force a lot of things because honestly, I don't wanna live in a jail cell and I don't wanna have to be a warden myself. Right. And these are all grown women. So mm-hmm. we, we only take women 18 and up. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's more important that I see who you are. I don't really care what you're dressed like. I don't care what your language is. All of that to me is exhaust. In the understanding of the hot cool system, we use a, a car engine analogy a lot of times. We talk about how so often the exhaust, the behaviors are why people go to jail, addiction, violence, theft, the pettiness, the fighting and things like that. It's the exhaust that gets them in trouble. And that's what so many of our programs, so many of our government programs are focused on how to minimize the exhaust. And so few of us are actually focused on if we could just turn off the engine, that exhaust would just naturally stop. Mm. So we focus on turning off the engine and we ignore the exhaust as long as we can trusting that it will naturally go away once she's able to come down into a cool mode 
Many of our girls, like I said, many of our girls don't even know what cool feels like. They're so used to being in hot mode that it's uncomfortable when they're calm for too long. They've got to go stir something up because they don't know how to function when they're not in their hot system. So we put up with that. We put up with a lot (laughs) in order to get to the point where she can hear us. Mm. What do you think the transition looks like? Or, and I guess we're talking about unique individuals and human beings being created as unique individuals, but is there anything you look for that's key that says we're transitioning or we've, we've made a little headway here? Is it simply that she begins to act like herself that's definitely an individual kind of thing. That's the nice thing about ha- about living with them 24-7 is that we do get to see them in all of their facets. And so we can begin to see those little small things shifting and, and changing. We'll have girls who are rabidly anti anything God. And so, so we don't talk about him very much in, around them. But at the same time, we may say something like, oh, that beautiful rainbow reminds me of God's, God's love and his protection and his promises. And slowly but surely, she'll, she'll begin to respond, mm-hmm. whether it's with a question, even just a grunt, huh. you know, anything that even sort of sounds like she's halfway shifting towards us mm-hmm. when she's in the midst of her freak out mode and we can come into the room and say, hey, focus. And she allows it. We know that she's, she's begun to trust us. That's what we're looking for is, can you trust me? You don't have to trust in this unseen God. That's, that's scary and different. And, and that you don't know, trust me. If you can trust me, then that gives him a doorway to begin to have a a relationship with her also. And that seems so integral because we, we're people of five senses. So we look to those things to dictate or to inform us about our world. So they have this backdrop where they end up in your ministry. You're still another person, of, but they've got to look to you to define who God is. Does that weigh heavy on you? Or are you confident about what goes on? Oh, both. I, I love this. I love being here. I love these women. They are funny and unique and beautiful and crazy and silly. And, you know, the babies are just precious and you fall in love with every single one of them almost instantaneously. But at the same time, I, I am who I am and I am not always perfect and I don't always say the right things. I don't always look like I'm a Christian. I used to joke, especially when my kids were younger, that if CPS Child Protective Services came knocking on my doors on the wrong day, I could easily end up in their situation too. Life is not perfect and I am not perfect. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I'm forgiven Mm -hmm. and I'm loved. And so it's from that that I can tell them that you're loved also. And it it helps that I have a story that's similar in some ways to theirs. And I can tell them that he forgave me and, and I can show you how you can be forgiven also. And that God's not angry at you and that you, you haven't done anything too big for God to forgive. You're not that powerful. (laughs) God is always, always bigger. One of the things 
when we talk about language or value system, crisis lends itself to making decisions for survival. So things Mm -hmm. like one's body is a negotiation tool means by which they can attain their need. And then you say, tie what matters back to survival. Can you talk about that a little bit? Many of our girls come from the streets. They come from addiction. They come from survival mode, whether they're homeless, whether they're an addict. A lot of times they've had to do things in exchange for a safe place to stay the night, in exchange for drugs, in exchange for paying off a debt. They've had to do a lot of things and they're not, they're not pretty. They're not proud of it, but it was always for survival. And so when we're working with them to help them look higher, look at something new that, you know, they've never experienced before, we have to figure out a way to make them understand that, first of all, that this is for you and that it is achievable, it is attainable, but also we have to paint it in terms of their own survival. So how does this benefit her? How does getting my GED in any way help me survive? Okay, well, that I can answer. (laughs) How does completing these courses that you make me do, how does learning how to budget in any way help me to survive? It's those types of things that we try to answer so that she can realize what her new life can look like. When you've spent years on the streets, having an apartment of your own, having to pay rent and utilities can be really daunting because she's never done it before. And so being able to come along and say, okay, getting this job will help you get this, will help you get this, will help you get the apartment and the car, will help you keep custody of your daughter so that she doesn't ever have to go into homelessness, so that she doesn't ever end up in foster care, so that you don't ever have to feel terrible so that you don't ever have to feel like you're a bad mom because you didn't lose custody. We can paint that for her and now she can say, oh, okay, well now I understand why working this crappy, you know, 750 an hour job at the gas station is important to my survival. And if we can get her doing that and helping her build consistency, then we can help her find a better job and move forward to the point where she can't afford to live on her own. So it, it all has to come back to her understanding of survival. Otherwise it's irrelevant to her. It's utterly meaningless. And that makes sense too. And you speak to the value system of survival, but yet translated into something that's beautiful and worth working hard for. Because I, I imagine that when you've had every, everything stripped away from you, like no motivation, because you're going to end up on the wrong end of the deal anyway, that's got to be a huge hurdle for you and your ministry to, to come up against. Where do they find that motivation to work at something so that they can have a different future, even though every time they've tried to imagine it, it never came through for them. So just getting that in place for them has got to be a huge uh, joy for you, a transformation for them. What is your biggest payoff for this? There's several. The baby kisses are awesome. Yeah. Uh, Watching them graduate and and move on and, and really no longer need us. 
they always need us to a certain degree. The, the girls always come back and call and text. They build that family connection with us, but they no longer really need us at the same level. And so it's like raising kids and seeing them move out on, on their own. They never quite go away fully, but they don't need you to the same level. And and so that's really encouraging to watch too. I think what, what really reminds me of why I do this is when I get those random things in the mail, birthday cards or pictures from school, things like that, Mm. just to be reminded that they still remember how we helped. That really encourages me that that there are some of our girls who hate for anybody to know that they're in a program. And there are others that are so proud of how we helped. They are our best advocates uh, in the community. And so that's really encouraging. And then what is your biggest heartbreak? Because you see them at their worst and want to build them into their best. So what is your most, your biggest heartbreak? It's, it's when they refuse to believe it for themselves. In November, we had one of our girls leave and go back to drugs. She has several mental health diagnoses. She also has cognitive delays. She's about a 12-year-old on a good day mm-hmm. in a 23-year-old's body. Mm-hmm. And then she also has a history of meth addiction that really she, she misses the drug missed quite a lot. We managed to get her through her pregnancy and she placed her baby for adoption. And then for a couple of months, she stayed with us. But the reality is, is that she cannot live independently. There was no real positive outcome for her. She needs a commune. She needs a permanent assisted living type of program, but those simply don't exist for her level. She's, she's a little too high for the ones that do exist. And so there is nothing for her. Mm. For a voluntary program. So regardless of how much we said, you are making a terrible decision, you know better, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. She chose to move out anyways. And she still calls and texts now and again, she was going to come to Thanksgiving with me. But in the end, she she decided not to. It's really heartbreaking watching them watching them believe what Satan tells them instead of what we've been telling them all this time. I think she just couldn't ever get beyond the belief Mm. that she could not be forgiven. She was going to church with me. She was loving it. We went to the altar every Sunday because she partly needed it and partly thought she needed it. Mm -hmm. She was doing really well there for a while, but the voices start back up again almost immediately. She never understood that she could fight those voices. I think she really believed that they were right and, um, and that we were the ones who were wrong. If we only knew her, we would, we would agree with the voices. It's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to watch. Um, but, but you trust Jesus. You just trust Jesus. I think the biggest cry of any human heart would be to be fully known good, bad, and ugly, and yet completely loved. And God's the only one who can deliver that for us. We don't even have access to people's intimate thoughts. We only let people but so close or know but so much, but God knows all of that and still loves us. So that is heartbreaking to hear that, that you could not pierce that lie that she believed with the truth of who God is. I thought it interesting that you pointed out the fact that 
when you're working with a young woman and getting her into the help that she needs and providing the resources that she needs, you said that when a young woman does not feel heard, they translate that into you're not doing what I want. You're not giving me what I want. Talk to me a little bit about that. So all of our girls, as part of that survival mode, they've learned to become master manipulators. And we fully expect to be manipulated and, and for them to attempt to manipulate us pretty much the entire time they're with us. They have to learn their way out of that. So when she's frustrated, it usually expresses itself in, you didn't give me what I wanted. You took this other client to the store, but I didn't get to go. I might've wanted to go too. But what it really means is something much deeper. I'm feeling left out. I'm feeling alone and abandoned. I'm feeling like I don't count. We see this a lot of times either when a new client moves in or also when a baby is born. It always brings out these feelings of, but you still love me too, right? And so we have to be really careful to make sure that they all know how special they are and how important they are. When a new client moves in, we're doing a lot for her. Mm -hmm. uh, we're having to get her to various appointments. We're with her a lot. It can feel like the others have been abandoned and have been forgotten because they don't remember all of those things that they were doing. They just know that I'm, I'm being left out. So we have to come up with ways to make them all feel special and unique and important because they are. But at the same time, we also can't cater to them 24 seven. We do have other things that have to get done too. So it's learning how to pick our battles, learning how to, to do the things that speak to her, learning their love languages as early as we can so that we can make use of that information later on when we need to and being honest with her saying, I, I know that baby's keeping me up too. Your turn will come. I know you're, you're babysitting an awful lot because they're at work and, and you're not, but your turn will come. In a few months, you'll have your baby and you'll be pawning her off on others to get some rest too. <laughs> it's reminding them the bigger picture and pull, starting to pull them out of that self-centered, self-focused mentality, but also recognizing that that's part of it. We talk a lot about our girls, regardless of their age, they're all about 15 because of the trauma they've experienced. And so we treat them like that. And a lot of times they act like that. They like being our daughters, our little girls, because they didn't get that in their own homes. And so it, we have to be continually careful about how we make sure that she feels loved and appreciated and connected to us, even when you're not center stage. So even getting them to support each other, that sounds important. For them to get outside of their own bubble and to yeah. see that they're needed in other capacities and that they have the ability to help in other capacities. Yeah. And I think you even make a distinction in one of the podcast episodes that I heard, heard you on. And that is the difference between asking more questions and just giving stuff. Yeah. And maybe that yeah. kind of falls along the same lines of, you know, you're not doing what I want, but so yeah. what's that when you say ask more questions versus just handing over stuff. Sometimes we'll have women call and say, Hey, I'm, I'm, pregnant and homeless. I need help. Okay. We're a residential program. Is that, yeah, I need, I need housing. Um, and then you follow the conversation through and come to find out that woman actually only needed a mattress for a crib 
so that she could stay where she was hmm. literally that that was the the actual conversation and so over the years that a lot of times people have been trained to ask for stuff they've been trained to call ministries and get what get the most they can get hmm. They don't actually necessarily need all of that. Sometimes they need something far, far less. Early on, in when I when we were first starting up, um, it was in the in the startup phase before we had an actual ministry. I came across a woman who had been sleeping in a shed in another woman's backyard because the husband said she made her bed, she needs to lie in it, um, and he wouldn't let her in the house. And, it was not just her. She also had a two-year-old with her. Mm -hmm. And so she had a van, but she was effectively trapped here in, in this area, but her family was about four hours away. And so I was able to get her to where she needed to go with just a, a tank of gas, which back then about eight, seven, eight years ago now was about $40. And that would get her up to where her family was and suddenly she's not homeless anymore. Right. I could have brought her into, had we been open and in existence, I could have brought her into our year long, 18 month residential program, but a tank of gas was also sufficient. So sometimes it's things like that where, you know, people will come and they'll take whatever you'll give them and they'll ask for more because they don't know where it'll come from next, or mm -hmm. they can sell it to somebody else on the streets or, or exchange it for something. Mm -hmm. They don't always need what they say they need. Sometimes they just need to be able to cry on your shoulder. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they just need to talk their way through a problem with somebody who's not telling them what to do, but listening and asking questions. Sometimes they just need somebody to be their friend and be a, a trustworthy place for them. I would imagine that is huge to be heard and to find, be given solutions and strategies that don't necessarily have to include your ministry and a tank of gas, getting her back to her support system and where she could find comfort and protection. So those questions do make a big difference, listening and giving somebody's voice value mm -hmm. by what they need. And the fact that you see through the actual need and into something either more important or more detailed. Yeah. The word says we will always have the poor with us. Why do you think that is? There are countless ministries, huge hearts, deep pockets who pour into this area of service. Why will we always have the poor with us? What's your personal take on that? That's a, a statement that Jesus makes, but he also, it's also echoed in, in Deuteronomy when they're talking about the Israelites about to go into the promised land, they say the same things, but, but they're, carrying the wealth of Egypt with them. And yet there's still poverty within the camp. They're going into the promised land where they're getting houses that they didn't build and vineyards they didn't plant and, and crops that they get to harvest that they didn't put in the effort for. And yet they're, they're still anticipating that there are going to be impoverished people. And they even go to, to the links of, you know, um, not gleaning all the way to the edges of your property. So much of poverty is about mindset. 
there are very real problems from government down. There are very real issues, societal issues that can keep people impoverished. And our girls face those every day. But at the same time, so much of it is about your mindset and what you are willing to overcome. And and really more importantly, what you think you are capable of overcoming. And when we get into generational poverty, that's the biggest thing that we struggle against is getting these girls to understand that you can have more, you can be worth more than what you think you are today. I don't think Jesus meant it flippantly that the poor are always going to be here. It's not a big deal because he was very generous to the poor and he was very mindful of the the least of these. But at the same time, it's about your mindset. I, I always go back to the, to the man at the pool of Siloam. Jesus asked him if he wants to get well. And he says, well, you know, when, it, when the angel comes to stir the waters, there's no one to help me get in and somebody gets in first. The man's first response is it's someone else's fault. It's not my fault. It's someone else's fault. Jesus tells him to pick up his mat and to, to get up. And I've always, I, I struggle with how brief the scriptures actually are. I always want to see the bigger story. I'm a, I'm a writer at heart. And so I always want to see more and understand, you know, what was going through this man's mind. Did he get kind of pierced by Jesus's gaze? And after being handicapped for all these years, suddenly he's like, okay, yeah, let's go. Or was it, was it more of a, of a thoughtful, mindful thing that do I trust this guy? It amazes me that he picked up his mat and suddenly he's walking and, and running and jumping. Yet at the same time, his first instinct was to blame it on somebody else. Mm. And we see that today, but, but we don't have the capacity like Jesus did to, to say, you're healed, be healed completely. You can be healed. I can help you get a GED. I can help you find a job. I can help you move forward. You can overcome addiction. But what then? It's a continual battle. It's a continual struggle. We talk about sustainable stability with our girls. We can get you into an apartment, but you have to bear in mind that rent comes due the next month (laughs) and then another 30 days after that. And it's about being sustainable and building that stability. This man had um, had no job, had no way to provide for himself other than begging. And so suddenly that's been taken away from him, which obviously is a good thing because now he doesn't need to beg, but also he has to now build something new for himself. He has to build a new life for himself. It can be very scary because they don't know anything else. So if all I know is addiction and and drug slinging and prostitution to get what I need, and now you're telling me to go get a job at seven dollars an hour i'm used to making thousands i'm mm-hmm. used to blowing thousands but i'm used to making thousands right it can be really intimidating to them to yeah. try something different and so we have to be patient talking about it being difficult and scary to make that transition it seems like your challenge or maybe your goal is a process of recreating the lens with which they have formed their specific way of looking at life? And if so, how do you retrain the mind? You're talking about the reality of I made thousands, but you're telling me to go get a job for $7.50. So you need to retrain the mind, soften the heart, 
is the tool to rebuild trust or is that really too simple of a way to put that? Well, no, the tool, the tool is the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, Good point. All we do, we build the trust so that she can hear the Holy Spirit. Mm. That's all we are ultimately is we're a conduit. We're a conduit that lets her cry, lets her lash out, lets her express her frustration in a safe way. We do the best we can to treat her as we would treat our own kids. My kids can can be as as angry or as frustrated at the world as they want to be. And they're never going to stop being my kids. I'm never going to stop loving them. So we treat her the same way. But always with the understanding that I can't change myself. I I can't make myself do what I want to do. I always laugh when I read Paul, you know, I I do what I don't want to do and what I don't want to do. That's what I end up doing because I, I do the exact same thing. So I can't fix myself. I sure can't fix her. And I can teach her a few things that can help her fix herself to a certain degree. But ultimately it is only the Holy spirit that can shift her into a new creation And so all I can do is be that conduit that says there is a better way and you can have access to it. If you'll, if you'll listen, if you're willing. To be humble and unoffended is really the heart of God. And that's what I see in you and your ministry. I also liken it to the fact that, you know, if you have a child that isn't necessarily coming around the house. They're out, you know, keeping their distance from you because they know they're not doing the right thing, or they think that when they come around the house, they're going to be judged or whatever. So they stay away doing their thing, but you don't love them any less. They just do not get the benefit of your affection and your gifts and your presence. And I think that's what uh, God does for us. He doesn't love us any less. He doesn't have children. He likes more. This is his favorite But when we do not draw close to him or draw near to his heart, we just don't get the advantage of his extravagant love for us. So that posture of a humble heart that's submitted to doing God's work and to be unoffended by language or dress or culture or whatever, that to me is huge in contributing to who God is, like show casing God, giving him the glory, putting the spotlight on him. And to me, that is where that transformation is going to be found. Is there anything that you want to add to this conversation that a young woman would, you would want a young woman to know, or even someone who wants to help her, but yet doesn't understand how to exactly help? Yeah. I think for those who want to help, but aren't sure how, there's a, a fine line a lot of times in being there, being the support and the encouragement and being the enabler. Don't give money, give love, um, give a safe place, but, um, but always with the understanding that you, this is not what I want for you. This is not the highest and best that is available for you, but I love you no matter what, and I will always love you tough love begins to, to lose its love part. And sometimes you do have to be tough. I I fully understand that, but there's never a time when you have to not love, you should always be loving. And even if you have to be loving and say, 
you you cannot stay here any longer because of you know these reasons but i love you making sure that they know that you love them is the most important thing you can always call me and i will do the best i can to help you but i have to protect these other people in the household i have to protect these others first and then i can help you we don't want to accidentally enable them to continue their um, their drug usage or continue their self-destructive behaviors, but we want them to know that they're special and that they're loved regardless. All too often, the reason that they act the way they act is because of trauma in their background. And so if you are aware of what that trauma is, you can address it. But if you're not aware, sometimes it's just really helpful to say, would you like to tell me what happened? Tell me what happened that, that has you so broken on the inside that you think that this is the best way for you to live. One thing we've learned by working with women who have a history of uh, drug usage and addiction is that all too often the drugs began as a solution to their problem, which was remembering things too well until the drugs became a greater problem than they solved. Mm -hmm. And so being able to just say, just tell me what happened. Right. Let, let me cry with you. Mm -hmm. Let me see what we can do to help, help you let go of this pain, let go of this hurt. A lot of times that is what it takes is just being able to listen and understand and not judge, not make them feel ashamed of what happened to them. A large percentage of our women, in fact, 99% have an ACE score of six or higher. And which means they, they experienced a large, a large amount of trauma. And many of our girls, probably at least half, experienced an eight, nine, or even a 10. And so just hearing what happened you begin to appreciate all the things that they've done to try to block all of that all these years. And so when you can understand why they're acting the way they are, it's so much easier for you to accept it. You know, now I understand. And now all the piercings make sense. All the um, promiscuity makes sense. All of your drug usage makes sense. Mm still doesn't necessarily make it acceptable. Right. That's a different, that's a different part when you can understand why you can forgive and you can offer more mercy and more grace. Mercy and grace. I count on those two things every day. There is significant power in apologies and asking what happened. I have to add that to my significant questions. Because sometimes we can be asking the wrong question or assuming the wrong thing. Yeah. So I like that, that taking the time to ask what's happening, because that's got to be at least knock the wall down a little bit as far as showing that compassion and that humble, humble mm -hmm. attitude. When you mm -hmm. think about the overarching ministry and some of the dark moments, or even if these dark moments are for the women that you help, what is something beautiful that God spoke into these places or an overarching beauty of who he is in the midst of this kind of pain? I'm reminded of a situation that happened about a month or so ago. We had a young woman who left the program too early ended up in, in back into drug addiction and lost custody of her daughter. 
and is struggling now to, to get her back. One morning, I had dropped off one girl after church, and as I was coming down the driveway at the house, I saw this other girl sitting on the sidewalk across the street smoking a cigarette with her dad. So I, I pulled over there to find out what was going on. She had already been weeping, but, but she started up all over again as she began to tell me the story. And her daughter has begun experiencing seizures and some other negative health consequences, probably, possibly related to her meth usage, mm. the mom's meth mm-hmm. usage. And so, of course, mom is devastated. Right. Um, mom feels so much shame, guilt, and just pain. And she's just, she's just bawling. Mm. And in that moment, I was there for probably 30, 45 minutes till another volunteer came. And of course, you know, my whole family is waiting at the restaurant, waiting on me to get there. But, you know, that's irrelevant in that moment. I was calm and I was gentle and I was encouraging and supportive. And I I knew that the Holy Spirit was with me and was giving me the words that that would calm her and give her peace. Someone else came and, and kind of relieved me and I was able to go be with my family. I'm calling my husband, telling him where I'm at. And I just, I just began to break down as I'm getting back up onto the bypass. By the time I got to the restaurant, I was, I was just bawling. Right. Like all those emotions were coming out of me. Mm. And my sister-in-law sits on one side and my husband on the other. And they just, you know, they just loved on me and, and listened to me sharing my heart that was so broken for her. Mm. The Lord had been with me when I was with her so that I could be what she needed me to be. But I also was absorbing all of the, all of the pain and the hurt and the guilt and the fear um, and the worry that, that she had been carrying. Mm. And so now I I had to release it too. And so in the middle of the restaurant, I'm just boohooing away. Everybody's looking at us a little weird, but you know, who cares? Who cares? It's just Jesus. (laughs) He was there too. He was there comforting me as I'm grieving for her. Yeah. Yeah. So he is in the dark places. I think he's the most present in the dark places. I think we see him the the best when it's darkest and his light is able to really shine forth. This is a beautiful place. I love that you shared in her pain because I do believe that's the heart of God is to share in our pain. He has the ability, the power and the authority to take that from us. And he gives us the ability to lift our heads under the weight of our decisions. But the fact that you were the physical manifestation of an ear and a heart and words of encouragement, truly a vessel of the Lord. I love your ministry. And you guys are located in Tennessee, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We is are. that your only location or have y'all branched out? Uh, for now. Yeah, for now. This is our first location. So the Lord has um, has big plans for us and we will be moving into um, national and international locations in the not distant future. But mm-hmm. for now, this is this is our only one. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. Spreading wings and spreading out. That's right. So you can follow our ministry at foundationhouseministries.org. We're on Facebook as well as Instagram, Foundation House. 
ministries. And you can also download my free ebook that tells a little bit more about the hot and cool systems at traumainformedchurch.com. And that's the name of my podcast, Trauma Informed Church Podcast with Suzanne Burns. Suzanne, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for sharing your heart and your passion with my listeners. I deeply appreciate you. Thank you, Sherry. I appreciate it. I'm glad to get to know you. Thank you for your time and for sharing this experience with my guest. I hope you have found encouragement for today and a deeper revelation of God's heart in the midst of pain and suffering. We'd love to have you as a subscriber to Finding God in Our Pain so that you can be connected with all my guests as they share their personal experiences and professional knowledge about pain and suffering. And because this podcast is a division of the website, A Life of Thrive, for more information and the various ways you can connect with us, please visit the website, alifeofthrive.com. I look forward to sharing more transparent stories from the hearts of women who intimately know what it means to have their world flipped upside down, their authentic struggle to make sense of it, and what recovery and healing looks like. Till then, sweet woman, remember you are not alone and that God speaks the most beautiful things in the dark.